Story 15 of Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, 1896-1901 to This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, 1896-1901 to By Lucy Maud Montgomery The Setness of Theodosia when Theodosia Ford married Wesley Brooke after a courtship of three years, everybody concerned was satisfied. There was nothing particularly romantic in either the courtship or marriage. Wesley was a steady, well-meaning, rather slow fellow, comfortably off. He was not at all handsome. But Theodosia was a very pretty girl with the milky coloring of an auburn blonde and large china-blue eyes. She looked mild and Madonna-like, and was known to be sweet-tempered. Wesley's older brother, Irving Brooke, had married a woman who kept him in hot water all the time, so Heatherton folks said, but they thought there was no fear of that with Wesley and Theodosia. They would get along together all right. Only old Jim Parmalee shook his head and said, They might, and then again they mightn't. He knew the stock they came of, and it was a kind you could never predict about. Wesley and Theodosia were third cousins. This meant that old Henry Ford had been the great-great-grandfather of them both. Jim Parmalee, who was ninety, had been a small boy when this remote ancestor was still alive. "'I mind him well,' said old Jim on the morning of Theodosia's wedding day. There was a little group about the blacksmith's forge. Old Jim was in the center. He was a fat, twinkling-eyed old man, fresh and ruddy in spite of his ninety years. And, he went on, he was the settest man you'd ever see or want to see. When old Henry Ford made up his mind on any pint, a cyclone wouldn't turn him a hair's breadth. No, nor an earthquake, neither. Didn't matter a mite how much he suffered for it. He'd stick to it if it broke his heart. There was always some story or other going round about old Henry's setness. The family weren't quite so bad, only Tom. He was Dosia's great-grandfather, and a regular chip of the old block. Since then it's cropped out now and again all through the different branches of the family. I mistrust if Dosia hasn't got a spice of it, and Wes Brooke too, but maybe not. Old Jim was the only croaker. Wesley and Theodosia were married, in the golden prime of the Indian summer, and settled down on their snug little farm. Dosia was a beautiful bride, and Wesley's pride in her was amusingly apparent. He thought nothing too good for her, the Heatherton people said. It was a sight to make an old heart young, to see him march up the aisle of the church on Sunday, in all the glossy splendor of his wedding suit, his curly black head held high, and his round boyish face shining with happiness, stomping and turning proudly at his pew to show Theodosia in. They always sat alone together in the big pew, and Alma Spencer, who sat behind them, declared that they held each other's hands all through the service. This lasted until spring. Then came a sensation and scandal, such as Decorus Heatherton had not known since the time Isaac Allen got drunk at Centerville Fair and came home and kicked his wife. One evening in early April, Wesley came home from the store at The Corner, where he had lingered to talk over politics and farming methods with his cronies. 
This evening he was later than usual, and Theodosia had his supper kept warm for him. She met him on the porch and kissed him. He kissed her in return, and held her to him for a minute, with her bright head on his shoulder. The frogs were singing down in the south meadow swamp, and there was a splendor of silvery moonrise over the wooded Heatherton hills. Theodosia always remembered that moment. When they went in, Wesley, full of excitement, began to talk of what he had heard at the store. Ogden Green and Tom Carey were going to sell out and go to Manitoba. There were better chances for a man out there, he said. In Heatherton he might slave all his life and never make more than a bare living. Out west he might make a fortune. Wesley talked on in this strain for some time, rehashing all the arguments he had heard Green and Carey use. He had always been rather disposed to grumble at his limited chances in Heatherton, and now the great west seemed to stretch before him, full of alluring prospects and visions. Ogden and Tom wanted him to go too, he said. He had half a notion to. Heatherton was a stick-in-the-mud sort of place, anyhow. What say, Dosia? He looked across the table at her, his eyes bright and questioning. Theodosia had listened in silence, as she poured his tea and passed him her hot, flaky biscuits. There was a little perpendicular wrinkle between her straight eyebrows. "'I think Ogden and Tom are fools,' she said crisply. "'They have good farms here. What do they want to go west for, or you either? Don't get silly notions in your head, Wes.' Wesley flushed. "'Wouldn't you go with me, Dosia?' he said, trying to speak lightly. "'No, I wouldn't.' said Theodosia, in her calm, sweet voice. Her face was serene, but the little wrinkle had grown deeper. Old Jim Parmalee would have known what it meant. He had seen the same expression on old Henry Ford's face many a time. Wesley laughed good-humouredly, as if at a child. His heart was suddenly set on going west, and he was sure he could soon bring Theodosia around. He did not say anything more about it just then. Wesley thought he knew how to manage women. When he broached the subject again two days later, Theodosia told him plainly that it was no use. She would never consent to leave Heatherton and all her friends and go out to the prairies. The idea was just rank foolishness, and he would soon see that himself. All this Theodosia said calmly and sweetly, without any trace of temper or irritation. Wesley still believed that he could persuade her, and he tried perseveringly for a fortnight. By the end of that time, he discovered that Theodosia was not a great-great-granddaughter of old Henry Ford for nothing. Not that Theodosia ever got angry, neither did she laugh at him. She met his arguments and pleadings seriously enough, but she never wavered. "'If you go to Manitoba, Wes, you'll go alone,' she said." I'll never go, so there is no use in any more talking. Wesley was a descendant of old Henry Ford, too. Theodosia's unexpected opposition roused all the latent stubbornness of his nature. He went over to Centerville oftener and kept his blood at fever heat talking to Green and Carey, who wanted him to go with them and spared no pains at inducement. The matter was gossiped about in Heatherton, of course. People knew that Wesley Brooke had caught the western fever and wanted to sell out and go to Manitoba, while Theodosia was opposed to it. 
they thought Dosia would have to give in in the end, but said it was a pity Westbrook couldn't be contented to stay where he was well off. Theodosia's family naturally sided with her and tried to dissuade Wesley, but he was mastered by that resentful irritation, roused in a man by opposition where he thinks he should be master, which will drive him into any cause. One day he told Theodosia that he was going. She was working her butter in her little, snowy, clean dairy under the great willows by the well. Wesley was standing in the doorway, his stout, broad-shouldered figure filling up the sunlit space. He was frowning and sullen. "'I'm going west in two weeks' time with the boys, Dosia,' he said stubbornly. "'You can come with me or stay here, just exactly as you please, but I'm going.' Theodosia went on spatting her balls of golden butter on the print in silence. She was looking very neat and pretty in her big white apron, her sleeves rolled up high above her plump, dimpled elbows, and her ruddy hair curling about her face and her white throat. She looked as pliable as her butter. Her silence angered her husband. He shuffled impatiently. "'Well, what have you to say, Dosia?' "'Nothing,' said Dosia. If you have made up your mind to go, go you will, I suppose. But I will not. There is no use in talking. We've been over the ground often enough, Wes. The matter is settled. Up to that moment, Wesley had always believed that his wife would yield at last when she saw that he was determined. Now he realized that she never would. Under that exterior of milky, dimpled flesh and calm blue eyes, was all the iron will of old dead-and-forgotten Henry Ford. This mildest and meekest of girls and wives was not to be moved a hair's breadth by all argument or entreaty or insistence on a husband's rights. A great sudden anger came over the man. He lifted his hand, and for one moment it seemed to Theodosia as if he meant to strike her. Then he dropped it with the first oath that had ever crossed his lips. "'You listen to me,' he said thickly. "'If you don't go with me, I'll never come back here, never. "'When you want to do your duty as a wife, you can come to me, "'but I'll never come back.' "'He turned on his heel and strode away. "'Theodosia kept on spatting her butter. "'The little perpendicular wrinkle had come between her brows again. "'At that moment, an odd, almost uncanny resemblance "'to the old portrait of her great-great-grandfather which hung on the parlor wall at home, came out on her girlish face. The fortnight passed by. Wesley was silent and sullen, never speaking to his wife when he could avoid it. Theodosia was as sweet and serene as ever. She made an extra supply of shirts and socks for him, put up his lunch basket, and packed his trunk carefully. But she never spoke of his journey. He did not sell his farm. Irving Brook rented it. Theodosia was to live in the house. The business arrangements were simple and soon concluded. Heatherton folks gossiped a great deal. They all condemned Theodosia. Even her own people sided against her now. They hated to be mixed up in a local scandal, and since Wes was bound to go, they told Theodosia that it was her duty to go with him, no matter how much she disliked it. It would be disgraceful not to. They might as well have talked to the four winds. Theodosia was immovable. They coaxed and argued and blamed. It all came to the same thing. 
even those of them who could be set enough themselves on occasion could not understand theodosia who had always been so tractable they finally gave up as wesley had done baffled time would bring her to her senses they said you just had to leave that still stubborn kind alone on the morning of wesley's departure theodosia arose at sunrise and prepared a tempting breakfast irving brooks oldest son stanley who was to drive wesley to the station came over early with his express wagon wesley's trunk corded and labeled stood on the back platform the breakfast was a very silent meal when it was over wesley put on his hat and overcoat and went to the door around which theodosia's morning glory vines were beginning to twine the sun was not yet above the trees and the long shadows lay on the dewy grass the wet leaves were flickering on the old maples that grew along the fence between the yard and the clover field beyond the skies were all pearly blue clean swept of clouds from the little farmhouse the green meadows sloped down to the valley where a blue haze wound in and out like a glistening ribbon. Theodosia went out and stood looking inscrutably on, while Wesley and Irving hoisted the trunk into the wagon and tied it. Then Wesley came up the porch steps and looked at her. Dosia, he said a little huskily, I said I wouldn't ask you to go again, but I will. Will you come with me yet? No, said Theodosia gently. He held out his hand. He did not offer to kiss her. Goodbye, Dosia. Goodbye, Wes. There was no tremor of an eyelash with her. Wesley smiled bitterly and turned away. When the wagon reached the end of the little lane, he turned and looked back for the last time. Through all the years that followed, he carried with him the picture of his wife as he saw her then, standing amid the airy shadows and wavering golden lights of the morning, the wind blowing the skirt of her pale blue wrapper about her feet and ruffling the locks of her bright hair into a delicate golden cloud. Then the wagon disappeared around a curve in the road, and Theodosia turned and went back into her desolate home. For a time there was a great buzz of gossip over the affair. People wondered over it. Old Jim Parmalee understood better than the others. When he met Theodosia, he looked at her with a curious twinkle in his keen old eyes. "'Looks as if a man could bend her any way he'd a mind to, doesn't she?' he said. "'Looks is deceiving. It'll come out in her face by and by. She's too young yet, but it's there. It does seem unnatural to see a woman so stubborn. You'd kinder look for it more in a man.' Wesley wrote a brief letter to Theodosia when he reached his destination. He said he was well, and was looking about for the best place to settle. He liked the country fine. He was at a place called Red Butte, and guessed he'd locate there. Two weeks later he wrote again. He had taken up a claim of three hundred acres. Green and Carey had done the same. They were his nearest neighbors, and were three miles away. He had knocked up a little shack, was learning to cook his own meals, and was very busy. He thought the country was a grand one, and the prospects good. Theodosia answered his letter and told him all the Heatherton news. She signed herself Theodosia Brooke, but otherwise there was nothing in the letter to indicate that it was written by a wife to her husband. At the end of a year, Wesley wrote and once more asked her to go out to him. He was getting on well, and was sure she would like the place. 
It was a little rough, to be sure, but time would improve that. Won't you let bygones be bygones, Dosia? he wrote, and come out to me. Do, my dear wife. Theodosia wrote back, refusing to go. She never got any reply, nor did she write again. People had given up talking about the matter and asking Theodosia when she was going out to Wes. Heatherton had grown used to the chronic scandal within its decorous borders. Theodosia never spoke of her husband to anyone, and it was known that they did not correspond. She took her youngest sister to live with her. She had her garden and hens and a cow. The farm brought her enough to live on, and she was always busy. When fifteen years had gone by, there were naturally some changes in Heatherton, sleepy and unprogressive as it was. Most of the old people were in the little hillside burying ground that fronted the sunrise. Old Jim Parmalee was there with his recollections of four generations. Men and women who had been in their prime when Wesley went away were old now, and the children were grown up and married. Theodosia was thirty-five and was nothing like the slim dimpled girl who had looked on the porch steps and watched her husband drive away that morning fifteen years ago. She was stout and comely, the auburn hair was darker and arched away from her face in smooth shining waves instead of the old-time curls. Her face was unlined and fresh-colored, but no woman could live in subjection to her own unbending will for so many years and not show it. Nobody, looking at Theodosia now, would have found it hard to believe that a woman with such a determined, immovable face could stick to a course of conduct in defiance of circumstances. Wesley Brook was almost forgotten. People knew, through correspondence of Green and Carey, that he had prospered and grown rich. The curious old story had crystallized into accepted history. A life may go on without ripple or disturbance for so many years that it may seem to have settled into a lasting calm. Then a sudden wind of passion may sweep over it and leave behind a wake of tempestuous waters. Such a time came at last to Theodosia. One day in August, Mrs. Emery Merritt dropped in. Emery Merritt's sister was Ogden Green's wife, and the Merritts kept up an occasional correspondence with her. Hence, Cecilia Merritt always knew what was to be known about Wesley Brook, and always told Theodosia, because she had never been expressly forbidden to do so. Today she looked slightly excited. Secretly, she was wondering if the news she brought would have any effect whatever on Theodosia's impassive calm. Do you know, Dosia, Wesley's real sick? In fact, Phoebe Green says they have very poor hopes of him. He was kind of ailing all the spring, it seems, and about a month ago he was took down with some kind of slow fever they have out there. Phoebe says they have a hired nurse from the nearest town and a good doctor, but she reckons he won't get over it. That fever goes awful hard with a man of his years. Celia Merritt, who was the fastest talker in Heatherton, had got this out before she was brought up by a queer sound, half gasp, half cry, from Theodosia. The latter looked as if someone had struck her a physical blow. Mercy, Dosia, you ain't going to faint. I didn't suppose you'd care. You never seemed to care. Did you say, asked Theodosia thickly, that Wesley was sick, dying? Well, that's what Phoebe said. She may be mistaken. Dosia Brooke, you're a queer woman. I never could make you out, and I never expect to. 
I guess only the Lord who made you can translate you. Theodosia stood up. The sun was getting low, and the valley beneath them, ripening to harvest, was like a river of gold. She folded up her sewing with a steady hand. It's five o'clock, so I'll ask you to excuse me, Cecilia. I have a good deal to attend to. You can ask Emery if he'll drive me to the station in the morning. I'm going out to Wes. Well, for the land's sake, said Cecilia Merritt feebly, as she tied on her gingham sunbonnet. She got up and went home in a daze. Theodosia packed her trunk and worked all night, dry-eyed, with agony and fear tearing at her heart. The iron will had snapped at last, like a broken reed, and fierce self-condemnation seized on her. I've been a wicked woman, she moaned. A week from that day, Theodosia climbed down from the dusty stage that had brought her from the station, over the prairies, to the unpretentious little house where Wesley Brook lived. A young girl, so like what Ogden Green's wife had been fifteen years before, that Theodosia involuntarily exclaimed, Phoebe, came to the door. Beyond her, Theodosia saw the white-capped nurse. Her voice trembled. Does, does Wesley Brook live here? she asked. The girl nodded. Yes, but he is very ill at present. Nobody is allowed to see him. Theodosia put up her hand and loosened her bonnet strings as if they were choking her. She had been sick with the fear that Wesley would be dead before she got to him. The relief was almost overwhelming. But I must see him, she cried hysterically. She, the calm, easy-going Dosia, hysterical. I am his wife, and oh, if he had died before I got here. The nurse came forward. In that case, I suppose you must, she conceded. But he does not expect you. I must prepare him for the surprise. She turned to the door of a room opening off the kitchen, but Theodosia, who had hardly heard her, was before her. She was inside the room before the nurse could prevent her. Then she stood, afraid and trembling, her eyes searching the dim apartment hungrily. When they fell on the occupant of the bed, Theodosia started in bitter surprise. All unconsciously, she had been expecting to find Wesley as he had been when they parted. Could this gaunt, haggard creature, with the unkempt beard and prematurely gray hair, and the hollow, beseeching eyes, be the ruddy, boyish-faced husband of her youth? She gave a choking cry of pain and shame, and the sick man turned his head. Their eyes met. Amazement, incredulity, hope, dread, all flashed in succession over Wesley Brooks' lined face. He raised himself feebly up. Dosia, he murmured. Theodosia staggered across the room and fell on her knees by the bed. She clasped his head to her breast and kissed him again and again. Oh, Wes, Wes, can you forgive me? I've been a wicked, stubborn woman, and I've spoiled our lives. Forgive me. He held his thin, trembling arms around her and devoured her face with his eyes. Dosia, when did you come? Did you know I was sick? Wes, I can't talk till you say you've forgiven me. Oh, Dosia, you have just as much to forgive. We were both so set. I should have been more considerate. Just say, I forgive you, Dosia, she entreated. I forgive you, Dosia, he said gently. And, oh, it's so good to see you once more, darling. There hasn't been an hour since I left you 
that I haven't longed for your sweet face. If I had thought you really cared, I'd have gone back. But I thought you didn't. It broke my heart. You did, though, didn't you? Oh, yes, 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 she said, holding him more closely, with her tears falling. When the young doctor from Red Butte came that evening, he found a great improvement in his patient. Joy and happiness, those old-world physicians, had done what drugs and medicines had failed to do. I'm going to get better, Doc, said Wesley. My wife has come and she's going to stay. You didn't know I was married, did you? I'll tell you the story some day. I proposed going back east, but Dosia says she'd rather stay here. I'm the happiest man in Red Butte, Doc. He squeezed Theodosia's hand as he had used to do so long ago in Heatherton Church, and Dosia smiled down at him. There were no dimples now, but her smile was very sweet. The ghostly finger of old Henry Ford, pointing down through the generations, had lost its power to brand with its malediction the life of these his descendants. Wesley and Theodosia had joined hands with their long-lost happiness. End of The Setness of Theodosia